0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training in Cancer Care.
1: Please go ahead. Well, thank you so so much, Norman. I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, What's New in the Treatment of Breast Cancer for Women of All Ages. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other uh, cancer organizations as well as many other breast cancer organizations and um it's really a credit to all of you that you're on this program today spending the next hour with us. This is an important program and actually it's a topic we have not done before, so it's it makes it even more important. Um we have on the call today over 475 participants. So you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, uh suburban and frontier communities, so from really all regions of the United States. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Iran, Iraq, Lithuania, United Kingdom, and Venezuela, so a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by Genomic Health, Inc., and Novartis Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is is Dr. Rachel Jenkowitz. Dr. Jenkowitz is Director, Rena Rowan Breast Center at the Perelman Center for Advanced Medicine and the Abramson Cancer Center. Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Jankowitz will be addressing an overview of the treatment of breast cancer in adult women of all ages, the critical role of genetic and genomic testing, and the value of early and repeated testing to inform treatment choices. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jankowitz.
2: Thank you, Carolyn, for that introduction, and thank you to everyone on the line for inviting me to speak and, and for your interest this afternoon. So I wanted to begin by giving a broad overview of how genetic and genomic testing has changed the way we approach treatment of breast cancer in women of all ages. And I think at times we get these two terms, genetics and genomics, somewhat um it becomes somewhat muddied trying to understand the difference between the two. So I think the first thing we need to do is, is define them. When we use the word genetics, we're talking about the study of heredity. The, the study of heredity. In other words, a gene is a specific se- sequence of DNA on a single chromosome, and genetics um, involves the function of that gene. And when we talk about genetic testing for patients with cancer or without cancer, we're really trying to identify a hereditary predisposition in the family that would help explain why the person got cancer in the first place, versus genomics is really the study of the entirety of one person's genome or genes collectively, and genomics can also in other words, test in a certain person how active certain genes are, and that can help us make decisions uh, that can help tailor treatment for cancers and Often, when we're talking about genomics, we're talking about testing on the tumor itself as opposed to genetics we're talking about hereditary or predisposition testing and I know that uh we're going to have uh, our second speaker, Dr. Sanhedra, is going to talk in more detail about the individual tests. But I think as a background, the first question is who needs genetic testing and why? And so when we talk about genetic testing, there's three stages. We We talk about the counseling that we do to the patient prior to ordering the testing then we think about what is the most appropriate test to order, and then we need to do counseling when the results are disclosed to help the patient interpret those results. So the first step of genetic testing is looking at the person's family history and knowing that if there are certain first, second, or third-degree relatives who have cancer or if the patient has cancer, Certain combinations of cancer make us more suspicious that there may be a genetic predisposition in the family that we could identify. Also, certain ethnicities can contribute to predisposition to cancer. One example of that would be Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry might increase a person's risk of a BRCA mutation, for instance. But there's a lot of uh, information gathering that needs to occur prior to make the decision about doing genetic testing, and then there's a lot of counseling that needs to be done prior to ordering the test so the patient understands what the ramifications of finding out that information would be. In other words, what their affected relatives would be at risk for if they were found to have a positive genetic mutation and how it would affect their own management in terms of treatment of their cancer, surveillance for future cancers, et cetera. Um so the other thing that has changed quite a bit of late is that we used to oftentimes test for one hereditary gene such as a BRCA mutation and now we've gotten into an era where we're often ordering multi-gene panels to look for hereditary cancer in patients and this can also make the decision the decision to pursue the testing and the conversation about the results of the testing a lot longer. Because some of the genes included in these multi-gene hereditary test panels, there's not as much information about how we should manage the patient afterwards because we just don't know as much about some of the more moderate penetrance genes. In other words, they aren't as strong as a gene like a BRCA mutation. So they may not actually provide clinically actionable information and how we take care of the patient. The other thing that we consider when we evaluate genetic testing uh, information is is where the testing is being done and what lab is being used, because there's a lot of commercial labs out on the market now that patients can even pursue their own testing, and it's quite important to remember that if there is a genetic test identified or or a positive result, an abnormal result, that that result should be confirmed in a lab that is basically um, and otherwise certified by the College of American Pathologists or the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. That's called CLIA Laboratory. And so the source of the information is an important thing to consider as well because we certainly don't want to make medical decisions unless we're certain that the testing has been done in, in a certified lab. Um, so that's basically genetic testing for hereditary risk from a big, broad overview. But then the other thing that we now are considering is genomic testing to help take care of the patient once they are known to have cancer. And There's several different scenarios where this occurs. So when patients have breast cancer, for instance, we have tests available that can help us predict their risk of recurrence. We also have tests that can be done on the tumor that at times can help us make decisions about what treatment to use. A very prominent example of that would be certain gene expression profiles help us decide whether to incorporate chemotherapy into the care of a patient with hormone receptor-positive breast cancer or whether to use hormonal therapy alone. Two examples of tests like that would include the Oncotype test and the print assay. And finally, the the last uh, area where we're employing genomic testing on the tumor is in patients with metastatic breast cancer. We now at times are doing testing on their tumors, and and sometimes we're doing them more than once over time to see if we could identify certain abnormalities in the tumor that would help us pick medications that would be more likely to help contain or or control the growth of their cancer. Uh, So, for instance, it is now approved for patients who have um, germline mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2 to use PARP inhibitors. Now, that's an example of when a genetic testing results result helps us pick a therapeutic agent. But another example is when you have a PIK3CA mutation done on a patient's tumor sample. That now has given us the opportunity to use a drug called Peloslib in combination with Fulvestrin. Uh, which is a commonly used hormonal therapy, which has improved outcome in patients with metastatic disease by that combination. Next, we have for triple negative breast cancer, if the patient's tumor has PDL one expression, which is defined as greater than or equal to 1% of tumor infiltrating immune cells present in their tumor in metastatic breast cancer we now have the opportunity to use a with a drug called abraxane which is a chemotherapy drug for treatment of those patients and so those are just several different examples of how tumor testing can help tailor our therapeutic approach we do have to emphasize though that that these testing abnormalities are not common, and it's important that we find them. But this is rather new, and it's only in the last several years that we've been able to make these advances, and we still rely very heavily on hormonal therapy for treatment of hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. We rely very heavily on HER2-directed therapies uh, for women who have HER2-positive breast cancer. And we still very much depend on standard chemotherapy drugs to treat triple negative breast cancer. So we certainly have a lot to learn um, in terms of tailoring future treatments, but I think it's very encouraging that we now have better ways to counsel our patients about hereditary or genetic risk of getting cancer in the first place and how that might affect their family members. And now we have new targeted approaches and uh, genomic approaches to tailor treatment for patients who already have cancer. And I'm going to stop there and, and um, move on to the next speaker, but I'll be happy to answer questions um, at the end of the call.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Jankwitz. That was an outstanding presentation and a wonderful way to start the program off. And um, I know there will be questions for you definitely during the Q&A. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Preeti's Sutendra, and Dr. Sutendra is um, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. And Dr. Sutendra is going to address tools that help predict the risk of breast cancer recurrence, the role of genetic testing and counseling, and the difference between inherited and acquired or sporadic gene mutations. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sutendra.
3: Thank you Dr. Mesner and thank you Dr. Jankowitz for that excellent introduction. Uh and thank you for everyone who is uh listening to the program today. Um so I'm going to start um uh by talking a little bit more about genetic testing. Um as Dr. Jankowitz mentioned, um genetic testing is done to see if somebody's who has been diagnosed with breast cancer if that cancer occurred because of a gene mutation that they inherited from a parent. So uh, of all the breast cancers that are diagnosed, about five to 10% are what we call hereditary breast cancers. The majority of breast cancers that are diagnosed are called sporadic or they have happened by chance. In those hereditary breast cancers, um, as it was mentioned years ago, the only genes that we knew about that caused breast cancer were the BRCA1 and 2 genes. Now there are several other genes that we know about and have capability for testing for that may also be implicated in causing breast cancer and for women who don't have breast cancer may have an increased risk of developing breast cancer. And just to clarify some of the um, terms that are used when we're talking about genetic testing, so uh, we refer to any mutation that's inherited from a parent as a germline mutation. Um, And the reason that is is those have developed in the germ cells of uh, someone's mother or father, uh, and they have been passed down to a child. And those mutations are present in all the cells of the body, and they stay there throughout someone's lifetime. Uh, Those are the mutations that we are testing for when we do a blood test uh, for genetic testing. Uh, the other type of test that Dr. Chankowitz mentioned, genomic testing, is when we look at genes that have been changed in the actual cancer cells, uh, and those are referred to uh, as somatic mutations. So, those are changes in the actual genes of the cancer cell. Sometimes we also call those somatic mutations uh, driver mutations because those are uh, sometimes driving the growth of those cancer cells. And we now are starting to uh, look into those driver mutations and see if there is any potential therapy that can target those mutations. So when someone has a, a driver or somatic mutation, and we do have a targeted therapy about um, for that specific change, we call that an actionable mutation. And the way we test for that um, is we send the actual tumor sample to special labs that are able to do that testing. Uh, Some of the terms you may hear uh, associated with that is next-generation sequencing, uh, precision medicine, targeted therapy, and, again, those are looking to target very specific mutations, not uh, broad-based chemotherapy that affects not just the cancer cells but all the cells in the body. Um, And I also wanted to just uh, reinforce that when we do genetic testing, that it is important to have that uh, pre-test counseling uh, at some institutions. It's done by genetic counselors. Uh, At some institutions, physicians may be doing it themselves. And that's really to really review in depth uh, someone's family history so that when we decide on proceeding with testing, we know exactly what genes we want to test for. For example, if uh, in a specific family, if we see uh, some family members with breast cancer and others with uterine and colon cancer, sometimes that may be part of uh, a, a specific cancer syndrome, and we want to make sure that genes uh, related to colon and uterine cancer are included in that panel test that person has. It's also very important that that testing is done through a certified lab. Um, as Dr. Jankowitz mentioned, there are several uh, commercial uh, tests that uh, you know anybody can send a, a cheek swab to when they look at the DNA. Um, but we want to be able to send samples to labs that can do the proper evaluation uh, of those genes. Changing gears a little bit, so when we talk um, about somatic mutations um, and a little bit more about genomic testing, there are some tests that we now have uh, to help um, us guide therapy. Uh, So before these tests came along, um, almost all women diagnosed with breast cancer, no matter how small it was, received chemotherapy. Uh, The first of the tests that was developed, uh, which I'm sure many have heard of, is the Oncotype DX test, and that test is on the tumor sample. It looks at 21 different genes inside the tumor sample, and from that test, the physician gets a report with a recurrence score. So that's a number. Um, uh, technically, the the number range goes from zero to 100, um, and then within that, um, within those numbers, there are. Uh, Some scores considered low and some considered high um, and some that are uh, still in this kind of vague intermediate group. Um, So in general, um, 25 is the cutoff. Anything above 25 is considered high and anything below 25 uh, is considered on the lower side. That test helps tell us Uh, whether it helps tell us what the risk of a cancer uh, recurring is, as well as it tells us will adding chemotherapy to estrogen-blocking pills be beneficial in lowering that risk of a recurrence.
0: Uh,
3: One of the other tests that uh, is similar, this uses a 70 gene assay, is the print test. Uh, And it's, again, used in the same way. Um, It's not exactly clear whether that can uh, predict the benefit of chemotherapy, uh, but the overall thought is if it can predict um, that someone's cancer has a higher risk of recurrence, then those are the cancers most likely to benefit from the addition of chemotherapy to their treatment. And I'm going to wrap up my section here.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Satinder. That was incredibly helpful and actually very informative. And I think for everyone on the call, these are uh, questions that people have, and it really helps to un- people to understand um, this uh, treatment. So thank you for so these tests, and and so thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth Cathcart-Rake. Dr. Ray is a staff physician, Hematology Oncology, Saint Luke's Cancer Institute, Saint Luke's Cancer Specialist in Breast Cancer, and Dr. Cathcart Rake will be addressing quality of life concerns, including managing treatment side effects and long-term effects, talking with your healthcare team about fertility concerns, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about the role of clinical trials. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cathcart Rake.
4: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. And um, for, for all the speakers, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and talk about quality of life concerns and um, and then go into some, some detail about a few things. So overall, um, thinking about treatment of breast cancer, I think of four main goals. And the order of importance of these goals may be different for different people, and they may change over time depending on where someone is on their cancer journey. But I always think I want to certainly help people live as long as they can without disease or with well-managed disease. Um, I want to help people's quality of life. I want to manage any side effects of the cancer. And I want to manage any side effects of the cancer treatment. And this is really a balance. And I I just like to start with that, thinking about treatment side effects and long-term side effects, because... Um, you know, this is really a risk-benefit discussion with your physician, depending on what cancer, you know, what type of breast cancer this is and also, um, you know, the, the stage and um, uh, the, the um, estrogen and progesterone status and that kind of thing. Um, and everyone has different side effects um, and, and different treatments are associated with different side effects. I think overall, if I can give a, a general recommendation, it's... Um, to try to be as active as you can. Now, that doesn't mean running a marathon or or um, doing something that you're not used to doing, but certainly walking, stretching, things like yoga or tai chi, where there's um, not a lot of high-impact activities, but where you can really um, feel and um, have that mindfulness kind of meditation component as well as stretching. Um, these things can be really helpful not only to help, With side effects of treatment, it can definitely help with a lot of endocrine and chemotherapy side effects, but it can also help decrease your risk of recurrence if you're able to get your heart rate up with some of these activities. Um, Other things that may help with side effects, massage, physical therapy or occupational therapy, especially if you're having some trouble getting active again after a surgery, for instance, and psychological support. I mean, this is no matter... Uh, you know, no matter where you are in this cancer journey, I think having someone who's there to talk with you about anxiety, low mood, um, that maybe due to the treatment or maybe due to the diagnosis itself is is such a good thing. Um, another thing that we're getting, having a lot more data to support is acupuncture. And that's, uh, the data is especially good for people who have joint pain but we're also seeing um, some improvements in hot flashes and night sweats, so these menopausal type symptoms, um, and some post-operative pain. So just something to consider that um, has a low low likelihood of side effects from the treatment itself. Um, as far as particulars in terms of you know what side effects you might experience, again, that's very dependent on the type of treatment. I would say, so for these estrogen-responsive types of cancers, the most common things that we see are side effects of these endocrine therapies, so hot flashes, night sweats, and vaginal dryness, um, as well as some mood changes. Sometimes managing these side effects is as easy as, well, the things that I mentioned in terms of um, activity and massage and things like that, but sometimes it could be as easy as switching to a different medicine, a different endocrine therapy. So even within the same class of medicines, equal efficacy, you might notice side effects from one that are a little less from another. you know, sometimes some topical medicines also help. Although certainly we also, you know, there's just some um, I, or, um, some oral medicines that we can use to help decrease, um, decrease these side effects too, and that would be something to discuss with your oncologist about um, whether that would make sense for you depending on the severity of your symptoms. Um, I'd say for these symptoms, sometimes especially these vaginal symptoms can be really profound and it's difficult to frequently to bring that up with your provider. Please, please don't hesitate to do that. You know, I, I, it's not an easy conversation sometimes, but this is something that many, many women experience, and it's something that frequently we can help with a lot with even topical medicines. And so, um, I, I just encourage you to to um, to talk about these issues. Now, as as far as chemotherapy, it has its own own range of side effects. I think a lot of people starting chemotherapy are really concerned mostly about the nausea vomiting, and that's very understandable. Um, I would say we, I think we do a really pretty good job of treating nausea and vomiting. Um, certainly, there are cases that are much harder to treat, but we give lots of medicines up front and then um, also provide patients with medicines to take home with them. Um, to use the first sign of nausea. So while that's a very reasonable concern, um, I think that's one that that we can treat really well up front, and your your oncologist should talk to you about that. Um, You know, one of the more common long-term side effects of chemotherapy is uh, peripheral neuropathy, which is this numbness, tingling, and pain in your fingers and toes, and that's from a common chemotherapy we use to treat breast cancer, either um, paclitaxel or taxol or docetaxel called taxotere. And both of these medicines cause it. And um, gosh, it's, it's um, something that can be an acute side effect that uh, may come and go in the midst of your chemotherapy cycles. Um, But unfortunately, in some people, it does linger and it can be permanent, although um, that's something that um, we try to adjust the doses of our medicines to try to prevent. I'd say certainly any side effect, bring up with your oncologist, that's very important. Um, But this one especially may be a reason to adjust your doses, again, because we don't want the side effect to become permanent. Another uh, another thing to consider with this is um, something we call cryotherapy, which is um, basically means wearing cold gloves on your on your um, hands and your feet to try to prevent this symptom from coming up. Now there is a recent study of this um, that didn't show that it was significantly helpful over over not doing it. However, I, even the, the people who did this study. Still feel like it helps, and feel like actually that population was a little different than the usual population. And I personally have seen a lot of benefit in my patients, so I'd still encourage considering that, and that can help prevent um, potentially prevent this symptom. Um, and then, you know, there are also some some oral medicines that can help the symptom as well. Um, so those those are usually the the main side effects and um things to watch out for, as I mentioned the, the big part of all this is just bringing things up and asking, Is this common you know how how does how is this treated and trying maybe some of these non pharmacologic things on your own um, to see if you can help prevent them or even treat them up front. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just keep moving on um, to the, the next topic, which is um, fertility concerns. And this is, gosh, this is a, a, a tough topic. Um, whether, um, whether or not fertility is a concern in the future depends in a large part on how old someone is who's going through these treatments. It's just if younger people just tend to regain their fertility a little bit more frequently in the chemotherapy or the endocrine therapy regimen um, and so again it's important to to be upfront and to say you know what is the risk of of me um, losing my fertility through this treatment if this is something that's important to you and your your provider should be asking you that too um, the I, I think if this is an important thing to be brought up early on in the treatment course again, just to get a sense of of um, what the likelihood of, of fertility changes might be. Um, but one thing to, to make sure and, and um, to take home from all this is that pregnancy is is not contraindicated um, after a breast cancer diagnosis. I mean, um, certainly there may be there are medicines. Um, especially, you know, chemotherapy and endocrine therapies where we wouldn't want you to get pregnant while you're on the medicines because they could cause some harm. Um, But after a period of time or after you've gone through these treatments, getting pregnant, we don't have any indication that that actually decreases or worsens breast cancer outcomes or pregnancy outcomes. Um, And so I, I really just encourage you not to lose hope with this breast cancer diagnosis, we may be able and certainly we'd like to help you preserve your fertility. Um, And the best way to do that is have a good sense of what treatment regimen is going to be recommended for you and meet with not only your oncologist but a reproductive endocrinologist as well um, to try to work out, especially if you're going to undergo chemotherapy, work out how to help preserve your ovarian function. Um, So, you know, chemotherapy, as I mentioned, I think it's most helpful to meet with reproductive endocrinology before you start and have a good plan in terms of um, at least know the pros and cons of trying to maintain your fertility. As far as if if, um, chemotherapy isn't a recommended part of your treatment, um, or endocrine therapy is. Frequently, we have people stay on that endocrine therapy for a while trying to decrease the risk of this cancer coming back. And then, you know, there will be a, a point in time where you can talk with your oncologist about going off of it, um, usually for about three months before starting to try to get pregnant. And that's usually a reasonable thing to do, but certainly depends on your on um, the type of cancer that you have and your discussions with your primary oncologist. Um, now moving Moving on to just talk about the role of clinical trials. Um, you know, cl- uh, clinical trials are a, wo- a wonderful thing to be thinking about, and we certainly, from an oncology perspective, really appreciate um, people who are interested in clinical trials, um, not only because that may help May may help you in the future. Um, certainly, we hope that we're developing medicines that may help you more, but also to help um, some of your your peers um, who've been diagnosed as well, um, potentially with a new treatment that might help them. Um, I think um, I think it's always just helpful to be upfront with your oncologist, and it, at each step in the road, there may be a potential for clinical trials to be offered. So not only before you start treatment. Um, so there are some systemic therapy trials, but um, potentially, um, for instance, we had a trial open for women who are pregnant um, or playing, hoping to become pregnant um, with on endocrine therapy um, and um, and then also you know women with metastatic cancer. Um, there's many clinical trials testing out new medications. So I think just each each new step where you're entering a new phase of your cancer uh, treatment, it's reasonable to ask. Um, there is a website. It's called clinicaltrials.gov um, where you can search your diagnosis and that comes up with a list of potential clinical trials. Um, I think it's reasonable to to take a look at that. If, if you know you're really interested in clinical trials, it can give you potential options and where they're located and things like that. Um, but that being said, I just caution you that website can be very overwhelming, and sometimes it's very difficult to be able to tease apart this is an option for me versus this isn't. So i just give you that caveat, and I'd certainly use it in a discussion with your oncologist. Um, so I, I hope that's that's helpful. Happy to answer any questions and I'll turn it back to Dr. Mesner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Um That was really um wonderful and um just a wonderful presentation covering a lot of very important issues for um for women of all ages undergoing treatment. So thank you so much. I know there were questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And um our next speaker is Ms. Lauren Chatillion, and Ms. Chatellian is an oncology social worker. Uh, she's a women's and she's women's cancer program coordinator at Cancer Care. And she will be addressing uh, Cancer Care's free women's psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian.
5: Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. As Dr. Mesner mentioned, mentioned. I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. I'm also Cancer Care's Women's Cancers Program coordinator. As an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. The Women's Cancer Cancers Program aims to be a primary comprehensive source of support, information, and guidance for women facing cancer and their loved ones. In my role, I maintain a clinical concentration in women's cancers and keep current of changing trends and new knowledge that affects the program and delivery of clinical interventions. Cancer Care is a nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis can impact an individual, as well as their loved ones and support system. We are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact that breast cancer can have on an individual. Cancer Care provides an array of supportive services, including individual counseling and support groups to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers. Cancer Care's short-term cancer-focused services are offered in person in the New York City, New Jersey area as well as over the telephone nationally. Additional services include online support groups specific to a breast cancer diagnosis, access to additional breast cancer-related educational workshops, reading material, as well as limited financial support. In partnering with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, Cancer Care also offers specific services to those diagnosed with TMBC. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. A social worker can offer support and guidance as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to a diagnosis. This may include adjusting to and finding new ways of coping with this diagnosis and throughout treatment that is tailored to an individual. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others, going through a similar experience who may understand what you may encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunities to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. Through Cancer Care, we offer several support groups for those diagnosed with breast cancer. If you are not nearby to our offices and would like to seek in-person support groups, we may be able to help you find what may be available in your area and possibly how to become connected with these groups. The hospital social worker or patient navigator at your treatment center may also be aware of local group offerings, which can be really helpful. There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services. Making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, fertility options, and even communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. Physical, social and emotional challenges may arise and it can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. You can discuss what led you to Cancer Care with one of our social workers and explore the ways in which we can offer support. Our social workers can also provide resources to access clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Schefflin. That was really excellent, a really um, wonderful overview of the services and the the services that often people find in programs that are very helpful to people in coping. So thank you. And now we have time for questions, so I'm going to ask uh, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, so I'm going to um, ask Norma to explain to you how to queue up for questions.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you would wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Alexandra R. Your line is open. Hi, thank you so much for this informative talk. Um, I've been
2: hearing recently that there is some data indicating that um, for invasive lobular carcinoma that chemotherapy is not effective or not as effective, and similarly that tamoxifen may not be effective uh, for premenopausal women. As someone who was diagnosed at 37 10 years ago, and did not receive more than a year of tamoxifen, but I got dose-dense ACT. I'm just curious if this is accurate, and if so, um, if there's anything that can be done about it. Um, I understand that you have to answer only in a general way, but I'd love any information that you have.
1: Thank you. Excellent question. Dr. Jankowitz, do you want to address that? Yeah, I can
2: field that one. Um, I have a, a particular interest in lobular cancer. And so the Information that's underlying that concern stems from a couple of studies that have been shown in lobular cancer, uh, one of which showed lower response rates to neoadjuvant or preoperative chemotherapy in patients with lobular cancer compared to ductal cancer. And what I tell patients is that that, that was lower response rates, not no, no response rates, Um and then the other paper, there was an important paper by Dr. Cristo Finale, um that showed, suggestive of the fact that for classical log- lobular breast cancer, um, that their response to chemotherapy was less likely to have a pathologic complete response if they were treated in the preoperative setting. Um, and it's important to remember that his analysis was limited to classical lobular breast cancer. And sometimes patients have lobular breast cancer that is not classical lobular breast cancer. You can sometimes have higher-grade lobular breast cancer. You can have pleomorphic lobular cancer. You can have a mixed classical and pleomorphic cancer. So what we need to be careful about is extrapolating some of these early findings to and making a blanket statement for all of lobular cancer is not good. I think you need to take it on a case-by-case basis, and I think at times incorporating uh, genomic tests such as mammoprint and or oncotype can be helpful. Um, there has been some concern about the, uh, you know, whether lobular patients were well represented in in studies of genomic assays, but at this point, that's sort of the the best tool we have to aid our decision-making. So I guess in in summary, I would say you have to look at the individual case, the the type of lobular cancer that it is, and possibly incorporate a genomic assay into decision-making for treating early-stage lobular breast cancer with chemotherapy. And finally, Um, In the metastatic setting, uh, if lobular breast cancer does become resistant to hormonal therapy, you have to use chemotherapy because um, if there's no hormonal therapy or targeted therapy option, you have to move on to chemotherapy, and and we do indeed see responses to that. And finally, the tamoxifen question um, is an ongoing unanswered question. There's some retrospective data in postmenopausal women only Um, that there was a higher proportional benefit to aromatase inhibitors over tamoxifen uh, for prevention of breast cancer recurrence. But we know that For postmenopausal women, aromatase inhibitors work in general better than tamoxifen a little bit uh, to prevent recurrence, but we weren't sure why we saw this signal in the lobular patients that it seemed like it was even more of a benefit in them. And so there is an ongoing large trial across the the country of nine different cancer centers looking at the use of tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitor or fulvestrin in the pre-treatment, in the pre-surgical setting. Where we're going to try to study the lobular tumors before and after exposure to these agents, and try to understand and answer those questions, which are really important ones for our patients with lobular cancer. Excellent.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much. That was very comprehensive. I hope that is helpful to you, and I hope you'll take that information back to your treating healthcare team. And um, I hope that's important information for you. Thank you. And our next question, Norma.
0: Stephanie K, your line is open.
6: Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I have learned so much more at this seminar. I love your seminars. Thank you. Um, I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor of HER2 positive and double negative. I did have genetic testing. My question comes from this. Um, I had a family member, my father, who had HER2. I'm sorry, he did have HER2 colon cancer. I'd like to know about blood tests at this time to tell about the HER2. It can if it's shown, because I have not heard about anything about HER2 for other, other family members, If that can be shown in the genetic testing at all, I know the BRCA I had was negative, so that's my question on that. My second question is on acupuncture. I do have peripheral neuropathy, permanent, and lymphedema. I did start acupuncture 10 visits. So I'd like to know, it, how, how do you know how many more is going to be beneficial to you? And my oncologist said definitely it does help the acupuncture, but my question is Can it be affected on the, can you use it on the unaffected, on the affected arm with lymphedema? She said it was no problem, but I worry about the okay. swelling on the arm with lymphedema with the neuropathy. Thank you. And thank you so much.
1: Okay, thank you so much. Those are great questions. I'm going to ask Dr. Sutendra to answer your first question and Dr. Cascot-Rake to answer your second. So, um, Dr. yeah that's if you would a, address it. Sure,
3: that's a great question. So, uh, HER2 uh, is a perfect example um, of one of the somatic um, changes that we can find in cancer cells. So uh, it's not a germline change, and that means it is not hereditary, um, but there are about 20 to 25% of breast cancers that will be positive for HER2 when we test those cells under the microscope, um, as well as a certain portion of uh, gastric or stomach cancers, and now we are looking into colon cancers as well that are HER2 positive. But it is very different from BRCA1 and 2. Those are changes that occur in the cancer cells, uh, not the gene mutations that we inherit from mom or dad.
4: Okay, excellent.
1: And um, thank you. And um, Dr. Cathcart Ray, would you like to address that second question about the acupuncture?
4: Yeah, of course. So, um, acupuncture for neuropathy has been studied uh, in a couple different there's been a couple different studies, not a randomized controlled trial like it has been for joint pain. The studies that we have are mixed in terms of whether it's helpful or not. Um, if it doesn't have a lot of side effects. And I've seen people who've had improvement with acupuncture. I certainly um, think it's a very reasonable thing to try. Um, As far as the swelling with lymphedema, we don't have any evidence to suggest that that gets worse with acupuncture. Um, The needle size is so small um, that Gosh, we we um, haven't seen any worsening of that. In fact, um, the acupuncturists that I've worked with before have actually um, have actually considered lymphedema as an indication. That being said, though, um, I always caution people. You know, um, each you know each surgeon is different. Each surgery is different. Um, It's very while I, I. Give general advice. I'd, I'd recommend also just making sure that your surgeon or your plastic surgeon is is okay with it as well, because I wouldn't want to do anything to go against what um, what the, what their uh, decision making is, especially in an area when the data is mixed.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. And um, we have a question from one of our online participants, and this will be for Dr. Jankowitz. Do you consider the person and not necessarily the chronological age of the patient in terms of treatment?
2: Yes, uh, yes, I, I, I do take into account the whole person in terms of their functional status is an important term we use in oncology. And when we use that term, functional status, we mean is the person independent in their activities of daily living? Are they um, fit? And essentially when we're using that term, we're trying to determine Is there potential for harm with some of our treatments? And do we need to be more cautious if the patient is not fit or does not have a really robust functional status? That being said, there are also uh, situations where we use the numerical age of the patient um, when employing some of these genomic assays like oncotype, for instance. We've recently had an analysis that in women under the age of 50, the test may have uh, a slightly lower threshold where we would we, we would have a lower threshold to use chemotherapy with a, a lower score than we would for a woman over the age of 50, and that's what the data is telling us. So I guess all around the answer is yes. Um, both age and and um, fitness and functional status all get incorporated into our decision making.
1: Okay, excellent, thank you. And um, for Dr. Sitendra, um, a question from one of our online participants. I'm a 20-year breast cancer survivor, early stage, ER positive, no lymph node involvement. Did seven weeks of radiation, five years of tamoxifen, no recurrence. What follow-ups do you recommend? So, if you could address this in a general way, um, so um, just some general guidelines and in, in terms of what. um, what we're hearing in terms of the question.
3: So um, I would still continue um, to follow uh, at our institution. um, After someone has reached the uh, five-year mark from their diagnosis, we follow them in our long-term survivorship clinic once a year. Uh, That way we can make sure that patients are up to date on things like mammograms, uh a bone density scan if they need it, uh as well as getting um a proper exam done. Um I think that the um important thing here is uh the the estrogen receptor positive cancers um are highly curable, um but some of them uh do come back even many, many years later, so 20, 25, 30 years um, down the road. So I encourage all patients to continue to be uh, vigilant about mammograms and really just being in touch with how, uh, how they're feeling and bringing any um, unusual or long-lasting symptoms to their doctor's
0: attention.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, And we have a question from one of our telephone uh, callers, Norma.
0: Bonnie S., your line is open.
6: Um, yes, my question was, I had my surgery back in February of 2018. I had a uh, bilateral mastectomy as well as uh, level 1 and level 2 lymph nodes removed. Um, I was estrogen progest- uh, estrogen and progesterone positive as well as HER2 positive. I've never had the oncotype DX test. Is that something, because I believe they save the pathology in the cells for years, is that something that's worth me requesting to have done now? Um, and when you use the term recurrence, do you mean just breast cancer again or also metastatic breast cancer?
1: Okay, well, thank you. That's an excellent question, actually. Um, and uh, Dr. Um, Jankiewicz, do you want to address that question?
2: Yeah, I can feel that one. So generally, we do not... The purpose of Oncotype and Mammoprint, both of those tests help us determine whether we need to use chemotherapy uh, in order to prevent uh, metastatic recurrence of breast cancer. Generally, we discourage the use of those tests for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer because we know we have such incredibly good outcomes in patients with HER2-positive breast cancer, but we can only get those outcomes if they get targeted therapy with a drug that targets the HER2 protein, and those targeted therapies work better if you combine them with chemotherapy. So that is sort of a straight-to-treatment scenario, chemo, HER2-targeted agents, and we generally do not order tests to try to get you out of chemotherapy. So that's probably why your your treatment team didn't order that. Um, and then the second part of your question was, um, do we make a distinction between recurrence and of breast cancer. So so I think the the answer to your question is there's two sorts of recurrences that can occur, actually three technically. You can have a distant recurrence, which means a spread of breast cancer to another part of the body, and that's what we call metastatic breast cancer. Um and common sites would include bone and lung and liver and things like that. Uh, but we also, yes, there is a possibility of getting a new primary breast cancer even in the other breast, for instance. So we do screening for that with annual breast imaging, mammogram et cetera. And then finally there's the concern for what we call a local recurrence, which that would mean a recurrence in the affected breast, the one that you already had cancer in. So all of those are concerns and medical therapy reduces risk of all of them actually. Um, but they're all things that the oncologist sort of keeps a look look out for in the follow up phase.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Um and um a question from again from one of our online participants Dr. Cathcart-Rake is HER2 test result possibly changed after some years from the initial test needed to be retested after certain years? Or Dr. Um, Jankiewicz do you want to address that?
2: So the only scenario where you would repeat HER2 testing would be um, if a patient had early-stage breast cancer and then developed a metastatic recurrence, meaning um, a breast cancer at a different part of their body, we generally want to biopsy that if at all possible, and it is standard to repeat estrogen and HER2 um, testing on the metastatic tumor, just in case it switches to HER2 positive, because that could be another then opportunity to treat it medically with HER2-directed drugs. That only that type of switching only occurs about well less than 15% of the time, maybe even less than 10% of the time, but yes, that is something that we do in that setting.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, and this will be our last question. Um, uh, for Dr. Sudhendra, um, from one of our online participants, any research regarding on or testing available for prediction of age of onset in a young BRCA woman whose family history is onset in 60s or 70s?
3: Um, so the um, so the BR having a, a BRCA mutation. Um, tells us statistically the chances of someone being diagnosed with breast cancer at some point during their lifetime. Um, It doesn't tell us uh, at what age that may or may not occur. Um, We often do look at someone's family history or or what we call a pedigree um, to see what ages cancers have occurred. Um, And one of the reasons we do that is we want to make sure that for someone who does not have cancer but does carry a gene, um, that we make sure we start their screening uh, at an appropriate time um, early enough to catch any cancers that may uh, potentially be diagnosed early. and the, I guess the other part of the question um uh typically uh women who are uh diagnosed at a younger age um their uh cancers often do end up needing chemotherapy um and they may have uh a higher risk of something coming back um I'm not sure if that answered the question, but
1: excellent thank you, wow. Well, I have to say this has been quite the, a phenomenal call. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've just been terrific, each one of you are just amazing. Uh, and I also I want to thank all of our participants for asking such really wonderful questions, both on the telephone and online, and all of you who have been listening. And I do want to remind everyone this is a one-hour program, and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. And so with that in mind, I just want to kind of sum up the program um, and remind all of you that um, there are many services that you can access um, from Cancer Care, um, which I think Ms. Shefflin, um reviewed very, very, co- very well, very fully. Um, and you can contact us by calling 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, you will also be getting an evaluation probably within two days of the program, and that evaluation will include any resources that were mentioned during the program or that we, we think you might be would be useful for you to have, including any upcoming programs that we are offering, educational programs that might be useful to you as well. Um, and for those of you who would like to take advantage of the psychosocial support um, that Cancer Care offers or the practical and financial assistance, simply contact us or um, you can or go to our website and identify your issues, um, and we will be happy to help you. Again, I want to thank you all. And, and also, as we conclude, I don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with breast cancer, any type of cancer. You now have an organization to contact, and, of course, all the other collaborating groups as well. Um, we're all there to help you. So I want to thank you all and wish you all a very fine day.